All right. Come on, make some noise for our student team. If you were a teenager and you weren't there, I can tell you, you missed out. If you were an adult and you weren't there, good on you. That was a smart move on your part. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Community of Faith, and I'm so excited about today and the opportunity to share something with you that God has laid on my heart. Uh, But I'm excited, and I think we should just give God a moment of praise because kids are back in school. Yes, I just... If you didn't applause, you don't have any kids, and so you have no idea, you have no idea how good God is. I love my kids. Don't misunderstand me. I love my three girls, but this past summer, we have spent a lot of time together, and for us, it seems like every summer is something different, and this past summer was all about spending time at the pool, and for the first time, my youngest daughter, Amelia, who is now four years old, she was all about the pool. And every single day, she wanted mom and dad to take her to the pool, which is awesome. But because she doesn't swim really good, dad has some rules for when we're at the pool that you have to follow if we're going to have fun and we're going to swim. And so rule number one is we don't get into the pool without an adult with us. You can't be in there by yourself. Rule number two is if you're not going to wear your floaties, you got to stay in the shallow end of the pool where you can touch and obviously your head's above water. And if you want to go out into the deep end, you have to put your floaties on and mom or dad has to be with you. And then the last rule that we have is if you're going to jump into the water, that's great. But because you can't swim and because you don't like to go underwater, you have to make sure that mom or dad is actually paying attention and watching you. And I've found that with my three girls, they either none of them want my attention or they all want my attention at the exact same time. And the other day we were at the pool and we were hanging out and Amelia's jumping into the water and dad's catching her just in time so her head doesn't go underwater. And at that moment, my other two daughters have something that they can't wait. They have to show me right then in the moment. And I can tell you that all three of my children get their impatience from their dad. And when they say they want something, they don't want it tomorrow. They want it right now. And so for just a moment, I turn my attention towards my children and my four-year-old who is way too much like me decided, you know what? I've seen this enough. I think I can jump in without dad paying attention. Literally in three seconds as my back is turned, I feel a splash and she has fallen in the water and she's gotten back up and she's crying and snotting everywhere. And I'm so sorry, dad. I'm so sorry, daddy. I'm so sorry. And in that moment, I pulled her close and And I I helped her to make sure her nose didn't hurt anymore because the water shot up it. And I'm loving on her and I'm consoling her. But after I did that, then I disciplined and I corrected her because I wanted her to know that dad has rules for a reason, that they're not to keep you from having fun, but they're to protect you and to keep you safe. But I also wanted her to know that as her father, even when she did mess up, And even when she did make mistakes and even when she did do something that I told her not to do, I wanted her to know that I still loved her and that I would still be there to console her and be there for her in spite of those mistakes. Yeah, that's all right. And I have found that in the church world, rather than being balanced in our view of God as a heavenly father, 
we see him in one of two extremes. We think either God is all about the rules and therefore we're all about the rules and we're all about religion and we only want to talk about sin. And when we do that, we completely ignore the grace and the love of God. But there's a flip side to that because I've seen the pendulum swing the other way where all people want to talk about is the love of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God to the point that they act like sin no longer exists and the rules don't matter and you can do whatever you want to do because God loves you. And my prayer for today is to help give some balance to you and show you that it's not one or the other, but it's both and. And today the title of my message is Great Sin and Greater Grace. Because I believe that there may be some people here today or joining us online, and maybe you're feeling this weight of condemnation and sin, and you think that there's no hope for you, but where there is great sin, there is greater grace. And for those of you that are in that place where all you think about is the love of God and the grace of God, I wanna show you that sin is still real, that we still have to live our lives a certain way, because we needed grace because of the great sin and transgressions that are in our lives. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? And we're going to dive into God's word today. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for your people. I pray right now that you would speak through me to them. And God, I pray that I would only speak what you say in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to John chapter 8. I'm going to be reading a, a, a kind of a short passage of scripture. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 11. And I'll tell you that if you were to study this on your own, you would see that there's some debate about this passage of scripture and where exactly it fits in the timeline of Jesus's life. But the people who compiled the Bible together felt like this was not only a true story, but this was an important story for us to gain understanding of who Jesus is and ultimately, who God is. But before we dive into that, I want to kind of set the stage so you have understanding of where we are when we come to John chapter 8. In chapter 7, it is the Feast of Tabernacles, and everybody is gathering together to celebrate. And when you read through chapter 7, we find that Jesus' brothers are urging him to go and celebrate with everybody else. But Jesus says, I'm not going to go because my time has not yet come. And in a couple of verses in John chapter 7, we get a clear depiction of who Jesus is and who we are. And I want to read this to you because it's going to help set up what takes place in John chapter 8. John chapter 7, verses 6 through 7 says this, So Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come but any time is right for you. I love this. Jesus just does not hold back. He says, the world can't hate you since you're a part of it, but it does hate me because I denounce it and testify that its deeds are evil. I want to read that again. It says, the world can't hate you since you're a part of it, but it does hate me because I denounce it and testify that its deeds are evil. It's important that as I set this scene that we understand that God and Jesus are holy. They are set apart. And we are not able to come into the presence of God 
because he is holy and because we have issues called sin and they separate us from God. Because unless you're holy, you can't enter into the presence of God. And so John chapter seven sets this up that Jesus is holy. So he's up there and he's, he's, he's with the people and he finally comes up and he starts to teach and he starts to preach about who God is and about who he is. And let me tell you something, when you start to declare the word of God and you start to speak truth and you start to speak light into dark areas, it creates division. And not everybody liked the message of Jesus. In fact, in John chapter seven, as he's teaching and he's preaching, the crowd becomes pretty hostile and pretty divided. As some people think he's the Messiah and the son of God, and others just think he is a crazy, possibly demon-possessed man who is spouting all kinds of nonsense. And at the end of chapter seven, after this division has been created, and now some people are upset, the Bible says that everybody goes to their homes. And I don't know about you, but if I got up here and I started teaching and afterwards half of you hated me, some of you love me, but most of you are hollering and, and calling me names and talking things about me, I don't know that I would want to come back. But check out what happens in John chapter eight because Jesus shows us how to deal with people who are divided against the words that we speak. John chapter eight, starting with verse one, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And then in verse two, it says, early in the morning, he came back into the temple court. He came back to the church and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began teaching to them. Can I tell you something that just because you encounter or experience criticism and contempt from other people, that that doesn't mean you're out of God's will for your life? I think sometimes we think that when we become believers, it's like something magic happens and all of a sudden everything's gonna be great, there's gonna be no problems, there's gonna be no issues, everybody's gonna love us, everybody's gonna love everything about us. But I have learned as a pastor and a follower of Jesus that the more I do his will, the more division that seems to come up around me, the more it seems like things will come against me. But Jesus sets the example that even when people don't like the truth of his word, we are not called to retreat, but we are called to recharge ourselves and get back up and declare who God is in the lives of his people. In fact, in Romans, uh, or in uh, John chapter 15, it says this, if the world hates, hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. It scares me when I look at the church and I watch it falling in love with culture because God didn't call us to just follow in line with the culture. God called us to influence the culture on his behalf. When I was in California ministering, I experienced culture shock like I never had before. Prior to going to California, I was in the Bible Belt of, of Tennessee at a Bible Belt church 
And all of a sudden, I find myself in Southern California at a big church. It was the biggest church I'd ever served at. And I had an assignment when I got there because a lot of the family ministries were a mess. And I remember the pastor said to me, he said, listen, you put your foot down on the gas and I'll pump the brakes if I think you're getting out of line. But he said, I want you to come in and you just flip this thing upside down. And so I did. So I prayed about it and I asked God for vision for what did he want to do and how could I serve alongside this pastor and do what he was telling me to do. And I just started to make changes. I just started to do what I felt like God was telling me to do. I started cutting programs that I didn't think were worth having around. I started changing the setup. I started changing the flow. I started challenging things that this church had done for decades. And as you can imagine, not everybody was very happy with that. And in particular, I remember one lady who not only didn't like it, but she decided she was going to go online and tell the world how much she didn't like it. I know y'all are holy, so you've never seen this or done this, but this lady, this lady went on and started to put me on blast. And I didn't even know about it because I wasn't friends with her. I don't remember if it was on Facebook or whatever, but I had a buddy, what a good friend. He called me up and he's like, dude, are you, are you seeing what she's saying about you? And I was like, did she, did she say my name? And he started laughing. He said, nope, she didn't say your name, but she did call you something. And he said, you should look it up and see what she said. And so I go on there and she starts to describe how Satan has infiltrated the church. <laughs> and he's come in with high hair and skinny pants. And man, he's, he's causing all kinds of problems. All right. He was the devil. And, and at the time, I, when I read that, I was crushed. I can laugh about it now, but I can tell you, I was not laughing about it then. And we had a Tuesday night program we would do every single week. And Man, I'm reading, because it's not one post. It's like a lot of posts, and it's getting traction, because other people are like, yeah, I can't stand him either. He is Satan, you know, and let's pray together and cast him out, you know, whatever they had to do. And so I'm walking, and, and the church was kind of on a hill, and so as a staff, we had to park kind of below, and, and so I'm walking, and I'm dejected. I'm depressed. I'm like, I, I'm over California. I am over this place. Maybe this is not what I'm called to do. And so the pastor that I worked for, he drives up in his ginormous pickup truck, which in California is a problem, okay? So maybe I'm seeing why he wasn't liked either, but he pulls up in this giant truck and he tells me to get in it with him and I get in and he's like, dude, what's wrong with you? And I was like, man, she, this late, I said her name, I won't tell you her name, but man, she's online and she's putting me on blast and calling me Satan. And he started laughing. He's like, it's all right, man. And I was like, no, it's not all right. I'm not the devil, you know. And I'm like starting to tear up a little bit because I'm young and emotional. And, and, and I'm like, no, this is it. This is the end. And, and he's like, no, 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 let me tell you something. He said, your job is to follow what God is telling you to do and not worry about what the people are complaining about you doing. He said, they didn't call you. They can't remove your calling. They didn't anoint you. They can't remove your anointing. And he said, if you want to be blessed and used by God, that's not going to make everybody happy. But if you continue to follow what God is telling you to do, you will live a life that is blessed. And can I tell some of you today that are kind of riding that fence and you're kind of one foot in the world and one foot in church, 
Let me tell you something. There is nothing that you can do that will appease the world. And if you're truly going to follow God and who he's called you to be, you have to stop listening to the chatter on social media and what everybody says and start doing what God tells you to do. And that's exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 8. And let's keep going. And so in John chapter 8, starting in verse 3, it says this, Now the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they made her stand in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. So what do you say to do with her? What is your sentence? This right here is the problem with a religious person or a religious spirit. Because religion always tries to condemn us and make us feel awful and defeated and like we're less than. But the Holy Spirit convicts us. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit convicting us is not so that we will feel bad, but so that we will be drawn into the presence of God. And in this story, these religious leaders have one goal, and that's to destroy the ministry of Jesus. And they will use any means necessary to make it happen. I want you to imagine if this were to happen today and I'm sitting here teaching and all of a sudden somebody came from the back and they drugged someone in and began to tell their sins in front of everybody. That's exactly what's taking place. And I want you to understand how difficult it would have been to have made this accusation. Because in the law that they're citing, it wasn't enough to assume somebody had been caught in the act of adultery. It wasn't enough to watch them leave the bedroom together. It wasn't enough to have suspicion because people saw them sneak away together. You had to see them in the act in order to make this accusation. And not only did you have to catch them in the act, but you couldn't be alone. There had to be somebody with you, a witness, who also saw them in the act. It was a very high bar in order to accuse someone of adultery and to have them stoned. So this absolutely happened. She was in adultery. And yet the way that this is set up, this is clearly a trap that isn't so much meant to destroy her as much as it is meant to destroy Jesus himself. Because if he follows the law and has them stone her, then he's breaking the law of the Romans where they lived because the Romans had taken away their ability to perform capital punishment. But if he sends her away and he, he doesn't stone her or condemn her in this moment, well, then he's breaking the law of Moses and he is a charlatan in exactly what they assumed that he was. And I thought about this and I realized that a religious spirit is somebody who will take everything that others do and everything that they do, and it's like they put it under a microscope. They put everybody's actions, every words that they say, everything they post on social media. They put all of the sin under a, 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 a microscope and they magnify it. A lot of times it's because they themselves are afraid of falling into the trap of sin 
and then it causes them to project that on other people. I'm always wary of preachers and people who are dogmatic about like one sin, because that usually tells me there is a struggle in their life. And they're struggling with it, and so they're magnifying it through a religious lens, and they're projecting it on everybody else. And the problem is when we operate in a religious spirit and we magnify every sin and everything that every person does, it causes us to turn a blind eye to the grace of God and the love of God. Let me read you this out of Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. It says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you got something, if you're taking notes, this is a part to write down. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. But if you operate in a religious spirit, playing the gotcha game and judging what everybody else is doing and being so worried about everything that you do because you're so worried that you'll sin and end up in hell, that's a religious spirit that is trying its best to condemn you and keep you away from God's best in your life. And a lot of times this happens for new believers. The minute we make that commitment to follow Jesus and to chase after him is usually the first time after we do that, that'll be the moment the enemy comes and begins to whisper about your past and the things that you did and the things that you've done that nobody knows about. I struggled with this myself. I, after high school, I think I told you all this before that I was done with this whole thing called church and I was, I was kind of just done, you know, this deconstruction movement or whatever, it's out there. I'm like, oh, the church is awful and that makes God awful. And because people are awful, it must be God and all this other stuff. And so I was just done with this whole church thing. And out of the grace of God, I ended up recommitting my life to Jesus because I had grandparents that prayed for me and parents that loved me in spite of how dumb I was acting. And it was on my birthday, I remember getting a call from one of my fraternity brothers and he called me up and, and he knew that, that I had found Jesus and that I, I was living a different kind of life. But he called me up and he said, dude, your birthday's coming up. And he's like, You're, you can legally drink now. And I was like, well, I can. But I, I was like, I, you know what? I, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't think I want to get into partying and stuff again. He's like, no, 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 no. I totally get you. He's like, listen, just drive up to Chicago. I got a new apartment. And, and listen, man, I just want to celebrate you for your birthday. And I was like, what is the harm in that? And so I said, okay. So I got in the car and I drove from Tennessee to Chicago and I'm hanging out with my buddy. And, and he goes, you know, man, we don't, I don't really have anything for us to do tonight. He's like, Hi. listen, man, I got a, I got an old thing of beer in my fridge. Would you like one beer? And I was like, nah, man, I don't know. I was like, I, I don't know if I can handle it. And he's like, no, 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 you're good. One isn't going to hurt you. I was like, you're right, one won't hurt me. So I drank it. And he goes, you know what would be good with this beer? What would be good with this beer? He, he said, listen, man, I've got some vodka right back here. Just one little shot, make everything a little better. I'm like, man, I don't know. He goes, listen, a little drinking's not gonna hurt you. And I was like, you know what? You make a really good point. A little drinking's not, and I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'd like to feel a lot better 
And so I took another drink and you know, you know where this is going. One drink turned into another drink and another drink and another drink. Because see, for me, it wasn't that I liked the taste of alcohol, but I was an introvert. And so when I drank and got drunk, that made me be able to be more outgoing and I could talk to girls and that was a big deal for me back then. And, and, and then I was easier to make friends. And, and, and so alcohol just seemed to make everything better. And so, I, man, the more drinks I had, the better I was feeling. And one thing ended up turning into another and we ended up at a bar. And then after that, we decided to go home and we're walking across this campus and I'm on the phone to somebody. I'm sure it was probably a girl. I, I don't remember, but I'm on the phone and I'm talking and all of a sudden I hear, and pull up next to me is my buddy in a golf cart. Now, mind you, we didn't come in a golf cart, so I don't, I don't know where he got it. But he said, hop in. And I said, all right. So I jumped in with him. I started thinking about it. I didn't have much thought in my brain, but I did have one like, maybe you shouldn't be on this. So I jump off of the golf cart and it turns into, okay. And my buddy comes running out from around the corner. He's laughing his head off and he's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And all right, I gotta go. And so I start running and all of a sudden a security guard and in Chicago, the security guards there do not play. They are all very armed, okay? And he comes out from behind a corner, gun drawn, and he tells me to get down. And, and I jumped to the ground and I ended up getting arrested. And I ended up getting to ride in one of those big, you know, giant drunk tank trucks and they cart me off to a jail cell and I get to sleep in a jail cell for the night. What a great way to end my birthday. And as I was in there and I'm coming to my right mind and I'm getting more and more sober, I start to feel awful about who I am. And I remember having this thought. Why would Jesus love me? And why would Jesus continue to forgive me when I keep running back to the same mess over and over and over again. And I got out of jail. I didn't even talk to my buddy. I grabbed my stuff and I started to drive home. And I texted my mom who didn't know. I don't even know if she knew I was in Chicago, but I for sure know she didn't know I was partying. And I texted her and I, and I said, Mom, I'm an awful person. And I think it's over for me because even though I've asked Jesus to forgive me and I've asked Jesus to make me new, I keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And she said to me, she replied back to me and she said, that's the point of grace. That's the point of Jesus's mercy because he provides something for you that you cannot earn on your own, something that you can't work for, something that you can't do enough good deeds to receive. And she said, if you'll keep running back to him, even though you keep messing up and make mistakes, she said, he'll begin to weed those things out of your life that aren't supposed to be there. And he'll make it that much more easier for you not to run back to those things that you did. And can I tell you, if you are here today or you're joining online and you find yourself in a place where you've said that prayer and you've asked for forgiveness, but you find yourself going back to the same junk and back to the same sin, his grace is still available for you. And if I can stand up on this stage and preach the word of God in spite of my past, then that tells me that God can use you, that God can work through your life in spite of all of your sins and what religious spirits may tell you. God's grace is enough 
to cover you. So they bring this woman before Jesus, and in verse 6 it says, they said this to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down and he began writing on the ground with his finger. However, when they persisted in questioning him, he straightened up and said, he who is without any sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and he started writing on the ground. And they listened to his reply and they began to go one by one out of the temple, starting with the oldest ones until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. Now, we don't know what Jesus says or what Jesus writes on the ground in this moment. You can look it up. There's lots of preachers who will guess and tell you something that sounds really good, but I don't want to point to what Jesus writes in the ground, but I want to point to his posture when the accusations are made. He didn't bow up and get defensive. He humbled himself in a low place as if he was taking her sins upon himself. And I believe that Jesus shows us something powerful in this moment. That it's when we get to that place of humbling ourselves and posture ourselves in a place of humility, that's the place where we begin to see our own shortcomings and the own, our own flaws that exist in our lives. See, a religious spirit doesn't just condemn other people, but it also puffs us up. And in this moment, Jesus shows these religious leaders a posture of humility. And whatever he said and whatever he wrote in that ground, it caused them to realize that they were in no position to cast stones at other people. And one by one, they began to exit the court, leaving behind the woman. And in 2022, I think this can be a hard story for us to relate to because we can't imagine a society where we would literally throw rocks in condemnation to destroy and kill somebody because of their sins and their mistakes. But I have found that for many people, we may not use physical rocks, but we have no problems casting stones all over social media and on comment threads and behind closed doors when we think nobody is listening, talking about anybody and everybody, thinking that everybody's got issues and everybody's got problems. We may not physically kill people, but cancel culture is alive and well in 2022. And one of the things that disturbs me is I think oftentimes the church participates more than anybody instead of welcoming people in, casting stones, and driving them out. And so she's left in this place. And Jesus says this in verse 10 and 11. He straightens up and Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she answered, no, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now and sin no more. For many people, this is a problem in this text because it seems that Jesus is excusing her sinful behavior. And I gotta confess that in a lot of churches, I worry a lot less about people magnifying sins and I worry about other people doing nothing but 
magnifying God's grace and God's love. And I'm not telling you that his grace and his love is not amazing. But some people get into this hyper grace thing and this seeker friendly thing. And man, we're only gonna talk about love and we're only gonna talk about grace and you know, unicorns and rainbows and it's all wonderful, it's all great. And when we do that, it's like we blind ourselves to God's holiness and his law. And we act like, man, the rules don't apply anymore because he provided grace. Live how you want to live. It's your get out of jail free card. You can have his grace and live your life any way that you want to. And the truth is that when we magnify nothing but God's grace and his love, I believe that it causes us to start missing out on areas where we're messing up and making mistakes. I've always thought this and I've, I've never understood this in the church world. We don't like to talk about sin, but we love to talk about a savior. But why would people want this savior named Jesus if they never think they're doing anything wrong? If he loves you no matter what, then what does it matter if I receive his grace, if I take him as my Lord and savior? It would be like being at a pool and my daughter and she's constantly jumping in and jumping in and can't understand why anybody is saving her, protecting her, because in her mind she's fine and she's safe and there's nothing wrong with it. Well, if she keeps doing that and after a while nobody's paying attention and nobody's rescuing her, how many of you know, eventually that's not gonna end well for my daughter. And I have news for people who are not following Jesus. If we don't receive him as Lord and Savior, it doesn't end well for us either. And what I've realized is in the church world, we will struggle with either religion or grace. But his word teaches us that it's not one or the other, it is both and, that they are connected. Yes, Jesus loves her. Yes, Jesus forgives her. But he says, go and sin no more. And so rather than magnifying one or the other, he calls us to look through both because as sin becomes great, his grace becomes greater. My granny Brumley, my great grandmother, my dad used to tell me all the time that she would pray that God would change his mind about hell. She would cry and think about her family members and her loved ones and people that she knew were not living for Jesus. And she would plead with God, please change your mind about hell. And my dad said she couldn't stand the thought of anybody not spending an eternity with Jesus. And can I be honest with you? I can't stand that thought either that there are people that are walking through life because of the church, because we've only preached one or the other. When Jesus says it's not all sin and it's not all grace, it is grace because of sin, and I'm thankful for grace because of sin. That Jesus came and he died, not because he, he loves you right where you're at, but because he can see where you can go. He can see who you can be. He doesn't love us and excuse the sin. It's out of his love that he died for us so we could be forgiven of the sin. And I wanna show you something that the Lord showed me in this text that I had never seen before. And I'm gonna end with one verse and we'll be done today. I realized that the religious leaders didn't just miss who Jesus was. I realized that they missed something else. 
They missed the fact that the grace that was available for the accused is the same grace that was available for the accuser. That though they were full of sin and though they, what they had done was wrong, the same grace that God provided for this woman was the same grace that was available for them. In 2022, if we feel like someone is in that place of sin and it's because of what somebody else did to them, oh, we can see forgiveness for them. But it's really hard for those who are persecutors and for those who do wrong and who are judgmental, it's hard for us to understand grace for them. And yet where sin is great, grace is greater. Romans chapter five, verse 20 says this, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. It doesn't matter who you are in this story, that maybe you're the woman and people have hurt you. It doesn't matter if you're the men in this story and you've done the hurting. Grace is available for you. The only difference between us and non-believers is the blood of Jesus. I'm not righteous because of what I do. I am forgiven because of who he is. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? It doesn't matter what you came in with today. You can leave this place forgiven, freed, and made whole. Not by how much good stuff you do, but because of how good and faithful Jesus is. All over this place as I stand, would you stand with me? All over this place, stand just for a moment. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward at the front. And I wanna close this out by giving you an opportunity to pray. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I wanna invite you into the opportunity to receive him. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what people say. I don't care what they accuse you of. I don't care who you've hurt or who you've accused. His grace is sufficient. Where sin is great, His grace is greater. I wanna pray for you. And listen, if you need something from God today, do not leave this place without having somebody pray for you this morning. God's a healer, He's a provider, and He is available to meet any and all needs that His people have. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, I'm not asking you to condemn, you don't do that, but I'm asking you to convict every heart that is far from you. God, you long to have relationship with them because you love them. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do in this moment what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said amen, amen, amen.